Hi, I'm Addie. Um, I'm in the Bertrand community group. I'm going to be reading Mark chapter 6, verse 45 through 52 for you. Uh, Jesus walks on the water. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, where he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought he was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. Okay. Good morning. How are y'all? Good. Okay. I grew up in a black Baptist church, so I do expect for you to actually talk back. <laughs> Good morning. My name is Devontae McLean, and I'm a member of the Bertrand Community Group here at Redeemer Odessa. It's a delight to be with other followers of Jesus today and to have the blessing of participating in our series on the Gospel of Mark. This is actually my first time ever uh, speaking on a, on a Sunday morning like this, so pray for me. Last week, Matt talked about Mark 6, verses 30 through 44, which focuses on Jesus' feeding the 5,000-plus people in the wilderness. Today, we will focus on Mark 6, 45 through 52, which Addie just read. Thank you. Um, and this focuses on what happened immediately after Jesus fed the thousands of people. To give some background about myself, like I just said, I grew up in a church on the south side of Odessa called Rose of Sharon. It's right down the street from Woodson Park. Ashley laughed because she knows what I'm talking about. If there's one thing I learned while growing up there, it's, it's this. Christians at Rose of Sharon love to talk back during the sermon. Having grown up in that context, there will be points during our study that I will call for your participation. I am not offended. As smooth as my voice may be, according to my wife, none of us are here to merely hear me speak. Amen? No, we are participating in active worship. Like it says in the book of Hebrews, the word of God is active and alive, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce between the division of heart and soul. So we want our uh, worship to imitate that as well. So let's have a practice round. Repeat after this. LeBron James will never be better than Michael Jordan. You got about three or four people. Okay. So it didn't go like I wanted. All right, I tried. I'll pray and then we'll dive into the text. Father, Thank you that this is not dependent on me. I cannot convict anyone of sin. I cannot make anyone's affections for Jesus increase, but you can. So, Father, I pray that uh, the studying I have done, the things you have blessed me to show me through your word, uh, I pray that I would convey that in a winsome and not dry way. And I pray that everyone's affections for Jesus will be increased, that where we need to be convicted, we will be convicted and where we need to be comforted, we will be comforted. Amen. When you were kids, did any of you have family members that were religious? You know, the grandmother that wakes up at 5 a.m. 
and starts playing gospel music or turns on Caleb. I guess I'm not really a Christian because I've never actually listened to Caleb. Or the uncle that has all the Christian t-shirts from Mardell. Or the mother who invents Christian cuss words when she stubs her toe. Well, similar to many of you, I also had religious family members. The funny thing is now I am that religious family member that wakes up playing gospel music. I had a lively aunt that once she woke up, immediately started playing Kurt Franklin or Bobby Jones gospel. If you're unfamiliar with either of those people I just mentioned, Kirk Franklin is a gospel artist, and Bobby Jones Gospel was a TV show that aired early in the morning. The host's name was Bobby Jones. Bobby Jones Gospel was like the pregame before the real church service. (laughs) Many of you who had religious family members growing up know one of the things that is absolutely not allowed is watching movies with witchcraft. Well, don't tell my lively aunt, but I actually let my family watch Harry Potter and read it. We're actually reading it to our daughter. Some of you may disagree with that, and that's okay. Don't avoid me after the service. I still love Christ, I promise. In the second book of the Harry Potter series, Chamber of Secrets, there's a character named Gilderoy Lockhart. Lockhart becomes famous by writing these exhilarating books about his adventures as a wizard. He becomes one of the professors at Hogwarts, which is one of the schools of magic in the book. Well, here's the problem with Lockhart's supposed tales of bravery. They are all lies, or cap, if you're a millennial. (laughs) What really happened is he wipes the memory of wizards, leaves them incompetent, and steals their stories, claiming them to be his own. This becomes problematic when people reasonably expect him to fulfill his duties as a professor. On one occasion, he ends up removing all the bones from Harry's broken arm. And on another occasion, he runs from class, leaving the students to fix a problem he created. People were counting on him, and they were disappointed because he was an intentional deceiver. Now, the reason I'm sharing this with you is not because I think you should go read or watch Harry Potter, but because it hits on the focus of our text today. It's a good um, contrasting. Contrary to the fictional, untrustworthy Gilderoy Lockhart, we'll see how in Mark 6, 45 through 52, Jesus gives us a trustworthy portrait of who he is and why it's important for us to remember what he's revealed about himself in Scripture. We always want to have a biblical and experiential understanding of God. Here's what I mean by that. Biblical, because God has revealed himself in the pages of Scripture, experiential because we don't just want to intellectually know what God says, but we want to taste and see that he is good. Amen? Amen. Our study today is centered around, repeat after me, Christology. Christology. One more time, Christology. Christology. I'm a teacher, so I'm okay with repeating myself. (laughs) Christology is a theological term that means the study of the person of Christ. Today, we'll see what Jesus revealed about himself when he walked on water. Speaking of water. I told Tanner the, most thing, the thing I was most excited about was bringing a cup of water on stage like him. Because he always brings his up here. He said, make sure you swallow it before you talk. <laughs> so, let's dive into the text. Mark 6.45, Mark Chapter 6, verses 45 through 46 says, and this is from the ESV, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat 
and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. While he dismissed the crowd, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. As one more reminder, this is what happens following immediately after Jesus fed the 5,000 in the, in the wilderness. One of the things that's really important when you read scripture is to not lose mind of the flow of the text. Sometimes we imagine Jesus just doing these things and they're, they're disconnected. Here's Jesus healing somebody. Here's Jesus talking on the mount and you don't see why he's doing those things. God has blessed us to be in a time period where the Bible is widely available. Many of you probably listen to the Bible while doing household chores or driving around. Some of you probably listen to it coming here. This availability of the scripture has not always been the case. It wasn't until the 4th century or the 300s that the entire New Testament was bound together as a single volume. Initially, the books of the New Testament circulated not as a complete volume, but as individual letters or gospels. So rather than having all 27 books of the New Testament, you just might have the gospels or Paul's letters. I mention this because when studying scripture, specifically the gospels for our case, we should be mindful to explore whether a story we're reading is present in more than one account. Looking into how various gospels report the same event will give us a fuller understanding of what happened. So as I'm teaching, I will also reference in the book of John and the book of Luke what they say about this same event, because there are some uh, differences in details that help us better understand. So Mark says in verse 45 that Jesus immediately made his disciples get into the boat and leave for Bethsaida, which is a town that was on the other side of where they were in the wilderness. Brethren, we have to build the habit of asking questions when we read scripture. Again, there's that active worship part. Permit an example. Okay, so Jesus has just fed thousands of people, but now he's sending them away. Why would Jesus send away the disciples and dismiss the crowds when there are 5,000 plus people who are yearning for him? Right? That's not how we would do it. And there's thousands of people. We want everybody to come in. Well, the Gospel of John answers this question, more specifically, John chapter 6, verses 14 through 15. And uh, John reports the event this way. When the people saw the sign, talking about multiplying the bread and the fish, when they saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and try to take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. So the reason he sends them away in a hurry is because the people were trying to prematurely make Jesus king. They were going against his father's plan. So what does Jesus reveal about himself in this encounter? When thousands of people are pressing upon Jesus to have him fulfill their expectations of what they think he should be like, expectations that go against his father's plan, Jesus' recourse is not to stay there, but to leave. To leave and go pray on a mountain, more specifically. Daniel Lakin puts it this way, commentating on the verses I just read. Jesus has just fed 15 or 20,000 people because it's 5,000 men. There were also women and children there. Jesus has just fed 15 or 20,000 people. Messianic excitement is at a fever pitch. The crowds want to make him king now. However, it is neither the time nor the means whereby he would receive his kingdom. A throne awaits him, 
but there is a cross on the way. This encounter shows us that Jesus was more committed to his father's plan than fulfilling the expectations of crowds. Again, kind of goes against our model of what we think church should be like. When there's a lot of people, our inclination is to not leave and go pray. This is a great application point. Are we walking in our father's plan or are we trying to fill someone else's, even our own, expectations of how Christians should live? Relieve yourself of the stress. God has already revealed in his word how Christians are supposed to live. So search his word. You don't have to invent it for yourself. Take note of Jesus' actions. He pulled away from the crowds to seek his father in prayer. In 2021, there seems to be an endless amount of activities to to participate in, some even good activities. And because of this, many many of us experience FOMO. Raise your hand if you do not know what FOMO is. Okay, we all do. Fear of missing out, right. In our desire to not be excluded from activities, sometimes we exhaust ourselves and deviate from what God is trying to accomplish through us because we don't want to be left out. It's okay to pull away from the duties and the activities and rest. In fact, our Father commands that we rest. So if you're trying to go nonstop, not only are you going to exhaust yourself, you're disobeying God. Let's move on to verses 47 and 48. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. It's a first century version of Kanye's Jesus Walks. After sending away the disciples and going to pray... Mark says it was evening when Jesus stood alone on the land and saw the disciples making headway painfully for the wind was against them. After doing some research, I learned that when Mark says evening, he means between 6 to 9 p.m. You can also know that it's late because earlier in the text, um, whenever the disciples see all the people coming, they say, Jesus is getting late. It's beyond the time of supper. Send these people away. So that's another way you can know the time. Remember this time frame because it's important. Six between, between 6 to 9 p.m. is important. You'll see why later on. You've probably heard Tanner mention Greek while preaching and thought, wait, what, is, what does this have to do with Bible? I thought you were a pastor, not a linguist. The reason Tanner sometimes mentions Greek is because the New Testament was originally written in Koine Greek. Everyone repeat after me, Koine Greek. Thank you. You're better than my students. Koine means common, so common Greek. The way we get our New Testament in English, or any other language for that matter, is because the New Testament is is translated from Greek into those other languages. The original language of the New Testament is Greek, which is why Tanner references it sometimes. Looking at the original language of the New Testament, Koine Greek, may give us a greater insight or understanding into what the gospel authors meant. Here's what I mean. When Mark says the disciples were making headway painfully, the Greek word behind the English gives the idea of torment or buffeting. So this was a terrible moment for them. So when Jesus saw the disciples being tormented or buffeted by the wind, keep in mind, verse 45 says, Jesus sent away the disciples. Why is that important? 
Have you ever suffered or gone through difficulty and agonized about whether you were in the Lord's will? Have you ever thought to yourself, surely if I was in God's will, I would not experience affliction or difficulty like this because God's will must be free of pain, right? I must have been disobedient in some way, even if I am unaware of it. And then you start to condemn yourself. Sometimes we do suffer as a result of unwise decisions or disobedience, but that's not always the case. Difficulty does not automatically equal you are being disobedient. Neither is that the case in our text today. The disciples are exactly where Jesus wants them to be, being tormented by a wave between 6 to 9 p.m. Sometimes Jesus will intentionally send us into trouble or difficulty. Now, now I have to pause here and explain what I mean. Because what I said was that sometimes Jesus will send us into difficulty, but what some of us may have heard was sometimes Jesus is a bully, or sometimes Jesus is cold toward us, or Jesus is flippant. He goes back and forth. But that is not what I meant, nor is that what the text means when it describes Jesus sending them into the storm. Jesus says he is the same today, yesterday, and forever. He is always compassionate. He is not cold or a bully. Thank God. Perhaps Tony Evans can explain it better when he commentates on this, when he comments on this verse. As they reached the middle of the sea, the disciples were struggling because of the fierce wind that was against them. They were in the middle of God's will. Jesus had sent them on their journey. Yet, they were also in the middle of threatening circumstances. If you're earnestly and faithfully seeking to follow God, don't be surprised when the trials come. God grants these so that your faith, more valuable than gold, may be refined and bring glory to Christ. The goal of our trials or suffering, when they're a result of obedience, not disobedience, is that our faith in Christ will be increased. None of our suffering is useless, though we might not understand why it's happening. And it's very important that we be mindful of that because I'm 100% certain you have known people who are not believers. You share the gospel with them and they're trying to follow God and their life gets harder and they're like, bro, this don't sound right. I'm trying to get my life right and I'm going through more stuff. What you told me must be a lie because they have a misunderstanding of what it means to follow God. Does Jesus sometimes put us through difficult situations? Absolutely. But Jesus is not like a teenage boy burning ants with a magnifying glass. He does not afflict us so that he and his father can have a laugh. We can well from being in painful situations, but let us also be comforted because Christ is with us in our suffering, working for our good. Brethren, this means we don't have to just grumble and wait for periods of suffering to be over. And I know I'm not the only one that grumbles in suffering. Christ is not absent in our suffering nor is his church. 2 Corinthians describes the Father as the God of comfort. And it says that whenever you're being afflicted, it's so that you're comfort, you can comfort someone else who's being afflicted. Right? Whenever one member suffers, we all suffer. Christ has a point in our suffering. It's not just to be mean. Verse 48 says, it was the fourth watch of the night when Jesus came to him walking on the sea. Fourth watch of the night means 3 to 6 a.m., So we see that Jesus initially saw them in the evening between 6 to 9 p.m., struggling in the boat, and he did not come until 3 to 6 a.m. I'm not a mathematician. My degree is actually in psychology, 
but I know how to do some basic mathematics. So that's about six to nine hours later. Jesus saw them on the, Jesus was on the land, saw them struggling, did not just sprint to them to help, but waited six to nine hours. But why? Meek and gentle lamb Jesus, why would he do that? We'll see soon. The last part of verse 48 says Jesus meant to pass by them, which on the surface of it can sound callous. Like he sees them suffering, he's like, all right, and just keeps walking. That's, that's not what was happening. Now, this verse has been interpreted in multiple ways, but we're going to use Exodus 33, verses 18 through 19 to help us understand why Jesus intended to pass by the disciples in the boat. Many of us are familiar with the story of the Israelites demanding Moses' brother, Aaron, to make a golden calf for the people. Well, after that event, which happens in Exodus 32, God tells Moses that he'll bless the Israelites by driving out their enemies and giving them a land flowing with milk and honey. But here's the thing. God says, though he will bless them in those ways, he will not go up with them because they are stiff-necked and he would consume them in his wrath. Brethren, be careful about accepting good things that are absent of Christ. It's easy when you see something that's blatantly sinful and you avoid it. Sometimes sin is not ugly, but it actually looks beautiful, which is why you sometimes desire it. And I desire it sometimes. Moses grieves and pleads with God to go with them. God obliges and Moses asks, please show me your glory. God responds, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. Did you see that? Moses asked to see God's glory and God promised to make his goodness pass before Moses. Make sure you slow down whenever you're reading. I sometimes speed read. Similar to um, God in the Old Testament with Moses, Jesus is intending to pass by the disciples in the boat in the same way God passed by Moses. Jesus was revealing his glory when he intended to pass by them in the boat. You cannot see the glory of the Son of God and remain unchanged. So again, the point was not to just see them struggling and moonwalk by them. The point was to reveal something about himself, namely his glory. Mark 6, 49 through 52 reads, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, the Greek, says, the Greek says phantom, and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So in this account, the disciples were on the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, which is named after the Roman emperor Tiberius, Caesar. And this sea is about eight miles wide and 13 miles long. And I cannot swim, so you'll never catch me out there. <laughs> A storm is raging. The Gospel of John tells us the disciples had rowed three or four miles. So Jesus walked some miles to get to them. Listen, Jesus does not shrink back from doing hard work to save you. Sometimes we imagine that Jesus is short-tempered with us, right? We messed up and Jesus saved us, but now he's not going to do it again. That's not his character. He walked miles to help them. The disciples are terrified and cry out because they think he's a ghost. In the midst of their panic, Jesus speaks and says, Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. 
Jesus sees his followers panicking and calms them with his voice. To quote Brother Tony Evans again, the very thing that was causing their problems was under his feet, namely the water, right? He sent them out to the water that was orchestrated by him. One of the things I've learned as a parent is unless my kids are about to get into trouble, then they avoid me, my and their mother's voice is comforting, similar to when Jesus comforted the disciples with his voice. Just as an interesting side note, Matthew 14 tells us this is actually when Peter says, Lord, if it is you, commend me to come to you, where Peter walks on the water. This is the same account. Brethren, how amazing that our Savior wants to comfort us with his voice and his presence. Sometimes we resist that because we want to be self-sufficient all on our own. One time Francis Chan said, the Spirit is called another comforter. But what if you don't feel like you ever need comfort because you feel like you can do everything on your own? You're actually avoiding God's comfort, right? So Jesus comforts them here. Do you remember I previously mentioned Greek and being able to understand certain passages by looking at the original language? Isn't the word of God amazing? I need an old church grandma to stand behind me, Bernadette Spears from Rosa Sharon, and say, all right, the whole sermon, bro. She would say the whole sermon. In the Greek, Jesus says, and I'm going to break it down for you. So in the English, what Jesus says is, take courage, it is I. In the Greek, he says, tharsate, take courage, ego, I, I, me, am. Tharsate, ego, I, me, take courage, it is I, I am. Do you see what Jesus did? Jesus just claimed to be Yahweh. Wait, what? Devontae, back up. How did Jesus just claim to be God? When God calls Moses to appear before Pharaoh in the Old Testament in the, in the, Old Testament in the book of Exodus and tells him to release the Israelites from slavery, Moses asks God, if I tell the Israelites the God of your ancestors sent me to you and they ask for your name, what do I say? God responds, I am who I am. Tell them I am sent you. God reveals his name to Moses as I am. In the language of the Old Testament, Hebrew, God's name is four letters. The original Hebrew did not have vowels. It was just consonants. It was Y-H-W-H. This is also known as the Tetragrammaton. Everyone repeat after me. Tetragrammaton. I'm gracious, I understand. <laughs> Tetra, meaning four. Grammaton, meaning letters. Tetragrammaton, four letters. When Jesus says, fear not, I am, it's in Greek, not Hebrew, but it's the same divine name, I am. Jesus would later use the I am name again in his trial before Pontius Pilate. In the midst of the storm that's frightening his disciples, Jesus pretty much says, don't be afraid, I'm God. Disciples, the storm is raging and you're terrified, but God is here with you. Don't be afraid. What comfort. Beloved, do we walk through this day with this confidence? Do I walk with, through the day with this confidence? No matter what I fall into, God is with me. This doesn't mean we live like Stoics, void of emotion, pretending like we're okay when we're actually falling apart on the inside. Whenever our son Austin is panicking, we'll say, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. And he's, he's obviously not. He's panicking. He's totally not okay. I'm not saying pretend like you're okay and you're not. That's not what I mean. It does not mean we go through our lives 
um, pretending, faking really that we're okay, but it does mean we can go through lives with confidence and joy knowing even in the midst of our trial, Jesus was with, uh, God is with us. Jesus was with his disciples on the sea and he's with us today. Because Christ is no longer on the earth does not mean he is not present here today. If you do think that, I would recommend you study about the presence of the Holy Spirit. The last two verses tell us Jesus gets into the boat, the wind stops, and the disciples are utterly astounded. Why are they utterly astounded about what just happened? We don't have to guess because verse 52 tells us, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. If you recall, when Matt preached last week, the text said the disciples were confused because they didn't know where they will get bread to feed so many people. Okay, Devontae, but what does that feeding in the wilderness have to do with the disciples being astounded about Jesus walking on water? Which is the exact question I had the first time I read this text. John 6, 4 through 7 answers this question. It reads, Now the Passover, the feast of Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Hey, Philip, where are we going to buy bread? so that these people may eat. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Thousands of people are coming. Jesus leans into Philip and says, hey, bro, it's a lot of people. Where are we going to buy bread to feed all these people? And John tells us that Jesus was testing Philip. I know Philip was anxious. They didn't even get curbside or delivery either. It's like when I take my kids. I'm sorry, let me back up. I know Philip was anxious, right, because they didn't have curbside delivery. It's like when I take my kids to the store and buy them clothes or books, which I love to do because I love to read. And I jokingly say to Austin or my daughter, Sanaa, bro, how are we going to afford all these? How are we going to afford all these pajamas and books? They're so expensive. Austin enthusiastically looks at me and says, Daddy, you. <laughs> right. You're obviously going to buy it. I'm three years old. My man ain't got no money. I'm going to buy the pajamas for them because I love them. When Jesus asked Philip how they will feed all the people, Jesus, wasn't having, Jesus was not having an identity crisis, perplexed about feeding thousands of people. Jesus was trying to open Philip's eyes to see who he is, Christology. Philip was supposed to think about all the things he had seen Jesus do and say, there's a lot of people. Jesus, you, we have you. I don't know how you'll do it, but you can. We have you and you can feed the crowds, even though I don't know every step of how that's going to happen. But that's not what Philip or any of the, of the disciples say to Jesus' question. Jesus was calling them to have faith and be careful to not overcomplicate faith. Jesus wasn't asking Philip to lay out the logistics of how he would accomplish this task. He was simply calling him to trust. Sometimes we overcomplicate over faith and condemn ourselves. That's what Mark means when he says the disciples were astounded about Jesus walking on the water. They didn't understand what Jesus revealed about himself when he performed the miracle with the loaves. Namely, Jesus can do anything. They didn't see behind the physical act of the miracle, so they didn't experience spiritual unveiling. 
Let me repeat that again because that's a bar. (laughs) They did not see behind the physical act of the miracle, so they didn't experience spiritual unveiling. Scripture says that you not only have physical eyes and ears, but you also have spiritual, right? We pray that people's spiritual eyes and ears will be open. Be careful to remember and meditate about what Christ has done in your life and what he will do in the lives of other believers as well. Walk by faith, not by sight. They were walking by sight, which is why they were astounded. Brethren, Jesus doesn't do miracles for the sake of doing miracles. Jesus doesn't just heal the blind for funsies or give a lame man back his ability to walk or feed thousands of people for the sake of doing it. Jesus is revealing himself in these acts. Who can feed a crowd of thousands of hungry people with five loaves and two fish except Jesus? Who can command a legion of unclean spirits to leave a man except Jesus? Who can give a blind man his sight back except Jesus? Who can heal a woman from a 12-year bleeding problem except Jesus? Who can bring a synagogue's dead daughter back to life except Jesus? Who calms horrifying waves with a word and a swipe of the hand except Jesus? Who walks in the midst of terrifying waves and calms his disciples except Jesus? And who calls rebellious, God-hating sinners to repentance and promise them everlasting life if they will trust in his son, Jesus? I'm sorry, if they will trust in Jesus. As Bizzle, the Christian hip-hop artist, says, he's the lamb, lion, and he's the goat. Only the fully human, fully God, eternal, compassionate, merciful, and gentle Jesus of the Bible is able to send you into the storms of life, send you into the storms of life, meaning it's because you were being obedient. It was not an accident. And he is able to weather it with you. Similar to the disciples, we, not, we may not be able to discern whether Jesus is in the storm with us, but he is present nonetheless. Jesus' presence is not contingent on you seeing him. One of my favorite theologians, Paul Paul Tripp, describes something he calls the grace of relief. The grace of relief is when we're going through something painful and we pray to God to relieve the pain. That is not a wrong or bad prayer. That's usually my first resort. Amen? I don't like discomfort or or pain. Pray for me. But sometimes... To be relieved from your pain would not be grace. Sometimes grace is instead leaving your disciples in a boat for six to nine hours so they'll see and understand who you are. Jesus doesn't always or immediately take away the pain, but sometimes he sends us into the pain so we can see him for who he is. And when we see, we rejoice. What a Christ we have. In the midst of your ways, call in the midst of your waves, call on him. He is able and he delights to help. In fact, he delights helping more than we delight in asking. If you don't know who this Christ is who walks on the waves with his disciples, the in, with his disciples, the invitation is extended for you. Christ is still calling sinners. This one who walked on the waves to comfort his disciples commands you to repent of your unbelief and trust in him. Repentance is not an option. Like, oh, I'm kind of busy, but I'll get to it later. The Bible says you're perishing, fam. <laughs> trust that Christ died on that Roman cross for your sin, 
rose from the grave three days later, defeating death and hell, securing everlasting life for all those to believe in him. Everyone say everlasting. Meaning never ends, even when you have bad days and yell at your kids. There is no better news, as John Piper says. If you do know Christ, if you're in him, like the scripture says, rejoice. You have come to the fountain of living water. Not only has Christ risen from the dead, he now intercedes on your behalf, the book of Hebrews says. He is your high priest. Christ's resurrection did not end his ministry. He now intercedes for you today because you need interceding, just like I do. All right, let me pray. Father, thank you for the brethren. Thank you for their love and desire to obey you. Father, I pray that this would not just be an emotional experience for any of us. Emotional experiences don't change our heart. Emotional experiences alone don't change our heart. But I pray that as the disciples should have meditated on what you did 